0: comic book time machine presents marvel's cosmic comics episode 24 giant size marvel licensed sci-fi super special john carter warlord of mars annual number one featuring an interview with marv wolfman it's true marv wolfman it's a special guest time traveler in this episode Welcome, time travelers, to a super special episode of the Comic Book Time Machine. If you are a new listener tuning in, (laughs) tuning in like it's a radio, it's not. Uh, If you're a new listener downloading and and plugging in uh, to this because of the uh, main event, the Marv Wolfman interview, I'm just going to give you a a brief uh, introduction to this podcast. Comic Book Time Machine is a podcast where we go back in time and just look at comic books, whether a week old or seven decades old it doesn't really matter it's just we're looking for things and reading things that we enjoy and then we talk about and so for one of the things that i'm doing we have group episodes where we talk about group topics me matt anderson daniel butcher right my, my two co-hosts but then we also have solo episodes where we talk about things that are in our wheelhouse things that we just really enjoy and want to read and talk about for me that means going back and looking at Marvel's star Wars and I'm using Marvel's star Wars as kind of a, a launching point to talk about other Marvel licensed sci-fi books. So for example, in the last episode, I talked about Marvel's star Wars number four, which is the fourth chapter in their adaptation of the first movie. Uh, I read human fly number two, which is licensed from a real life stunt man. Uh, although, boy oh boy i might have gotten myself into something bad there by reading that series we'll find out when i start number three next time uh i read uh the island of dr moreau adaptation that they did which is a special a marvel super movie special kind of thing and i also read the uh, third third issue of godzilla where he meets the champions and fights hercules it's not as awesome as it sounds but it's still Got some awesome moments to it. And then finally, I, I read uh, John Carter of Mars number five, which has just been consistently month to month to month so far. Awesome. I wish I would have discovered this book earlier, but I didn't. I'm still enjoying myself reading the series. Uh, One of the things that came up, though, in that month, and this is October 1977 is the cover date, but the month that they were released in was July 1977. And one of the things that was also released in that month was John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number one. Now, I was already talking about a number of different books, and so I thought maybe it'd be cool if I would break out the annuals and actually spend a little more time with them and do something special. The question was, what? What do I do? So my first thought, invite a guest. And my first impulse was to find someone who liked what I'm reading and invite them. And this wouldn't be hard. Just off the top of my head, I can think Steve McDonald, Daniel Butcher. Those are both guys that I podcast with. We we have a rapport already, and they both really like John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Right there, there's two guys, two awesome guys that I could pull in. Uh, But I went to Wizard World Chicago a couple weeks back, and it was a great convention for me. I met a lot of awesome people. I reconnected with some artist friends of mine that I haven't seen in years. Uh, the artists were the hedge night, Mike Miller. He was there. And so we were able to reconnect and uh, have, you know, go out to eat in the evenings together. And I met some of his friends and, and made some new relationships. That was great. It was a lot of fun. Also, I did something that I've never done at a convention in over 10 years of going to comic book conventions. I brought something from home to have someone sign because I saw that Marv Wolfman was going to be there. Now, Michael Golden was also going to be there. He's an artist uh, from Micronauts and some other things, but uh, I didn't bring anything for him to sign. I wish I had, but then again, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't because I bought one of his prints. Actually two, a Micronauts print and a Star Wars print that'll go up on the wall in my office when I finally uh, do our basement and, and renovate our basement so I can have my office downstairs. That's another story. Marv Wolfman was there and I, I actually you know, took my John Carter Warlord of Mars omnibus, the very book that I'm using for this podcast as I'm reading through the John Carter books to go along with the Star Wars books, and I took it. I had him sign it. I made a fool out of myself uh, talking to him. I bumbled my words, and um, I, I just uh, really – made a complete and utter fool out of myself, or at least I felt really foolish after I I spoke to him. It wasn't that I felt foolish because of anything that he had done. I just felt foolish because of the way I had talked to him. With that fresh in my mind, though, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to try and contact him and see if he'd be willing to talk about John Carter and talk about his career. And I sent him a, an email with that foolish conversation that we had fresh in my mind, hoping he would get the email and he would not remember the foolish conversation uh, wouldn't be as fresh in, in his mind fortunately I don't think he did at least he never said anything about it and I don't know I mean obviously on email he wouldn't see my face anyway so I was able to sneak in um, but anyway he was uh, very willing to do the interview and I was very very excited very honored uh, and very touched actually that he was willing to do that so briefly before we get into the interview I, I do want to give some background to both John Carter and to uh, Marv Wolfman here. Over a hundred years ago, John Carter uh, made his first trip to Mars in a pulp magazine serial called under the moons of Mars. And we know that book today as a princess of Mars. And it became the inspiration for many different high adventure, uh, sci-fi pulp superhero things to follow, to come after that. And John Carter matters. To me and, and should, if you're listening to this podcast, he he matters to you. You may not like him uh, as a character. You may not like the books or the stories, but he matters to you as well. And the reason he matters to us is because so much of our pop culture lineage can be traced back to that superhero of Mars. Superman himself considered rightly so to be the most influential, if not the, the first, <laughs> uh, of the superheroes. Uh, He was influenced by John Carter and Siegel himself actually said in an interview, he said Carter was able to leap great distances because the planet of Mars was smaller than the planet Earth and he had uh, great strength. And I visualized the planet Krypton as a huge planet, much bigger than Earth. Now, uh, this was a 1983 interview that it's been cited in many, many places (laughs) online, but honestly, I can't find the actual original source and at least online i can't and so i i'm not sure where you know i'm not sure about the legitimacy of the quote but legitimate or not it's how i see it it's it's hard not to see that original superman who could only leap great distances in a single bound not being influenced by john carter who could do what leap great distances in a single bound and Okay, so if he influences Superman, then Superman influences everything past him, you know, as far as superheroes and that kind of thing. But then don't even get me started then about Star Wars and all of the different things that Star Wars pulled from John Carter. And honestly, some of these sci-fi ideas that Star Wars would have gotten from John Carter actually might have actually come from things that got them from John Carter. I mean, John Carter was one of the first times that we saw a pulp hero in these settings. And if it wasn't the first, and I can't tell you i don't know i'm not a historian a john carter historian <laughs> however if not the first it was the greatest of the influences and and it did well enough to 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 have these influences now here's just a small list though from star wars you have the Banths from john carter and banthas from star wars sith are in john carter there are some sort of evil insect sith are in star wars are some sort of evil jedi uh jed and other variations on that word are kings and queens in John Carter, and Jedi warriors are in Star Wars. Padwars are officers in John Carter. Padwans in Star Wars are, are Jedi in training. Uh, th- those are just words that have you know, similar sounding. And if there's just one or two, you could maybe take it as a coincidence. But the fact that there's so many of them, that's not coincidence. It, it just, you know, I, I, I hate coincidence. And we're going to talk about coincidence later. This can't be coincidence, not the way it's happening here. Now, there's also concepts and stuff, you know, the flying ships soaring over, and when I say ship, I mean like ocean liner type ships flying over desert landscapes. And you know, even Princess Leia's bikini in Return of the Jedi. Now, are these things ripoffs? Maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe it's more homage and, and maybe it's just influence, like I said before. But it's definitely influence. I mean, you can take it past influence into ripoff territory if you want. I'm not going there. I'm just saying this was a big influence on what came behind. And so um, I won't say that John Carter was the best even of these things that were doing that those kind of stories. But it definitely was one of the first and one of if not the first to actually happen. It was one of the first to really capture imaginations of future creators who would do the same and so on and so on. So Superman's creators were influenced and inspired. Superman then became an influence and an inspiration of all these other characters and and so on and so on and so on. And the lineage can be traced. A lot of it can be traced back to John Carter. Now, one of those creators who got caught under Edgar Rice Burroughs Barsoomian spell was Marv Wolfman. And what's cool about Marv Wolfman is that he wasn't just caught in the spell, He was actually one of the lucky people who got to become a part of the legacy that inspired him by working on these original stories that were, you know, wrapped into, if not official canon, it became a part of the legacy and the history of the character as far as outside canon. I mean, as far as it happened, it's literal. It was in history that Marv Wolfman got to do this. Now, so far, the material that we've covered by Marv Wolfman have been original stories. The air pirates of Mars so far has just been something that he created by himself. But the reason for this special episode is annual number one, and it is not a part of that series of stories. Instead it's Marv Wolfman's adaptation of one of Edgar Rice Burroughs later works, the novella, the ancient dead from a book called Lana of Gathal. I'm not going to get these names right, but Lana of Gathal is the uh, 10th book in the John Carter series. And the second to last book in Edgar Rice Burroughs series of books. It has four novellas that are connected. So even though they are four different stories and four complete stories, with the beginning, middle, and end, they also c- go together as a united whole. Uh, I read the book first before reading the comic and that novella was a breezy read with an awesome concept, maybe even a couple awesome concepts in there. Uh, but there were two bits in it that turned me against the story. I mean, these things caused me to just turn my head, cross my arms, uh, you know, scowl, uh, basically stupid coincidences that should have never been written into the story. And I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Edgar Rice Burroughs, I respect you and enjoy your writing, but this one just kind of, it fell, it fell at my feet like a brick. So as I was reading, the only thing I think was, I hope that, that Marv Wolfman fixed this stupid story beats in his adaptation. And he does make changes in his adaptation. So, so there's that. Did he fix it? Does his adaptation fix the story or does it break it? Well, we'll get to that later. For right now, it's time to uh, go ahead and, and and actually begin with the, the main event. Uh, Marv Wolfman is known, of course, for much more than the John Carter uh, Warlord of Mars books. He's actually perhaps uh, best known for Crisis on Infinite Earths. And he's also known for his run on Teen Titans, making that just a powerhouse title. Uh, he's also uh, well known for Tomb of Dracula, one of my favorite comic books ever of all time. And that's also the title where he created Blade. Now, that's the comic character that is responsible for comic book movies rise in popularity over the last, you know, 15 or so years. Without Blade, we wouldn't have had X-Men or Spider-Man and the uh, MCU, which Daniel Butcher and I owe a great, de- uh, do a great deal of gratitude to Marv Wolfman for for creating Blade to uh, connect the dots to uh, welcome level 7com But anyway, to say he left a mark on the comic book industry is a huge huge understatement so i'm going to run the interview now and then afterward i'm going to explore his adaptation of john carter in the ancient dead (laughs) mr wolfman i'd like to thank you for taking the time to uh uh, out of your your hectic and busy schedule especially with some of the things you're telling me about off off microphone um but thank you so much for joining me on the comic book time machine
1: no problem. Uh, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, so John Carter is the main reason why I, I contacted you. So I'd like to start with John Carter in with our conversation. And I, honestly, I'd like to start at the beginning. What attracted you in the first place to John Carter?
1: I think that uh, I don't remember why I read the first John Carter, but it was certainly as a young teenager. And I felt that as I'm reading it, I was reading the kind of stuff that I really enjoyed – really loved but had not seen much of before. Uh, Comics were certainly uh, adventuresome, there were science fiction elements to comics but not a lot. Occasionally Superman would fly to another planet but not as often as one would think. Uh, John Carter was a pure romantic tale of a person coming from Earth, going from Earth to Mars, meeting the aliens, meeting really interesting type of characters, a very different feeling that I had ever seen before, but exactly the type of stuff that I loved. And uh, it drew me in.
0: So you had read these long before you had done any writing for the comics then?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so what got you involved in doing John Carter at DC to, to start well, with?
1: I, I was uh, Joe Kubert's uh, assistant editor, working for him on uh, the Tarzan and all the Edgar Osborne material, and also the war books that Joe was doing. Uh, Joe had a, had to hire an assistant to work in the office because he was busy drawing, so he could only come in maybe uh, once or twice a week, and I'd handle the day-to-day type of functions within the office. When we got Tarzan, he decided that he would put John Carter as the backup feature to Tarzan, a short uh, short story, and I lobbied hard to get it. Uh, Joe was going to write it. But he really didn't have any feeling for John Carter and said so. He was just going to do it because he was going to do it. Um, So he was – the fact that I really loved the character and really was pushing to write it, uh, he let me handle it.
0: So – but then you have this really – I think it's an unusual situation where the character changes publishers – And you changed publishers with the character. And when Marvel got the license, um, suddenly there's Marv Wolfman on the license there too. So how did that work out?
1: That was a coincidence. Uh, When uh, John Carter went from the back of Tarzan to uh, half of a magazine called Weird Worlds, Mm -hmm. another comic that also featured Carson of Venus uh, as one of the features, and John Carter and Carson of Venus would split the book. Uh, When the book was finally canceled... I was already at Marvel. Uh, in fact, Roy Thomas let me finish off the last few issues of uh, the John Carter stories while I was at Marvel, which was very unusual at the time, but he knew I, lo- he knew I loved the character. Um, in between DC and Marvel getting the license, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was going to publish the books themselves. And I was hired to work on the John Carter material and wrote one story that was going to be drawn by Rudy Nebri. I'm sorry, not Rudy Nebry, Alex Nino. And Alex uh, drew the story that I wrote, uh, but by that point, by the time he finished, Edgar Spurs Incorporated decided not to publish themselves, but to license it to Marvel. Now, I was already working at Marvel, as I say, Mm -hmm. and Roy knew how much I loved the character, since I begged to be allowed to finish my DC run while I was there, so... Even though Roy wanted to write John Carter tremendously, he also wanted to write jo- uh, Tarzan, so he let me do the John
0: Carter material. Okay, so it was a very happy coincidence then. <laughs> very happy coincidence. Yeah. So, uh, looking back then at your DC and Marvel, because I'm mostly familiar with your Marvel, I only have one issue that I found in a, a back issue bin of the oh, Weird Worlds.
1: Dark, uh, dark Horse, strangely enough, reprinted them.
0: Yeah, I. Uh, you you mentioned that in a. Uh, actually, you mentioned that when I when I met you at Wizard World. And I went to Amazon to, to see if I could get an order, a copy of that, because I only had the one issue of Weird Worlds. And right. um, I can't really compare the two, the DC, the DC and the Marvel, really well. Uh, it's the Marvel stuff that I'm reading through right now and just really, it excites me every issue. Uh, oh, thank you. So my,
1: There's a big difference. There's a big problem with the DC material, uh, certainly when it went into Weird Worlds. Uh, and the problem was the books were not doing very well and the license time for John Carter, I mean, for all the Edgar Osborne stuff was slowly coming to an end and every month we were told this would be the last issue (laughs) Uh, and then it was continued. So what happened was we never really got to tell a story in weird worlds that we had wanted to tell. I wanted to do an adaptation actually of Princess of Mars and what happened was every issue it felt like we were ending it then starting it again, the next issue. So the last few issues are not very good because it didn't have a direction. When we were doing it at Marvel, obviously I knew this was the beginning of the run, no matter how long it lasted, so I was able to do uh, what I think is a much
0: better job. So at Marvel, <laughs> you you did original stories to start with. I mean, that, that first arc, the Air Pirates or Sky Pirates arc, um, that's all original. That's all you yep. filling in the gap between basically two paragraphs of... Of one of the of, of Princess of Mars. So, um, what kind of freedoms did it give you? But what kind of also challenges did that cause for you?
1: My view is if if you can do original material set in the universe, it could be more interesting. People, the people who love John Carter had already read the novels, um, and just to illustrate them, that's fun. But it may be more fun to try something new. And what I wanted to do was really immerse myself in the style of Edgar Rice Burroughs and to write the stories the way I thought he would have done them today or back in 1970 yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Uh, so what I wanted to do was try to um, try to do an Edgar Rice Burroughs like John Carter story, not a Marv Wolfman one. Uh, it had a very different sensibility from my other writing. And since I was pretty knowledgeable at that point of, with all the John Carter material I didn't think that would be a major problem plus it got to be exciting so even the Edgar Rice Burroughs fans would not have an idea of what we were going to do next Yeah, that everything yeah. was going to be an original story rather than oh we know exactly where this is going.
0: Well and that's one thing I think probably my greatest compliment to that material is that even though I know John Carter can't die and I know Tars Tarkin's not going to die Deja Thoris she's not going right. anywhere Uh, Because this is in the first book still. Um, It's not about what's going to happen, but it's how are we going to get there? How are they going to get to the end there? And you managed to find uh, things that are surprising me. Of course, I'm reading it now new, you know, and I have no idea what to expect as I'm going step by step through the issues and they're surprising me. And that's what's uh, a prequel of any sort. You know, you know, Darth Vader is going to end up being Darth Vader or Anakin's going to because... You've already seen the end of the story. It's just how you get there. And that's really what what I enjoyed um, about reading it right now is just that that level of surprise.
1: uh, Thank you. It's always interesting when you look at a book written 50 years ago almost because it was written in the 70s. So Mm -hmm. it's 45 years old or something like that. Um, Styles change. My – I was a beginning writer when I was doing that. I was still only in the business a couple of years, still learning, desperately still learning my trade. Uh, I have not reread the material because I think of it, all of the material I wrote back then, as probably very dated and very crude compared to where I am today. But I worked the hardest I was able to to make sure that John Carter got good stories, and I just hope that uh, it did. But I know that it's got to be dated in the type of writing. But then again, so is Edgar Rice Burroughs uh,
0: books. <laughs> That's true. When I
1: read them. Uh, they were very 1910. You
0: know? yeah. Well, I can tell you as someone who, you know, I'm 40 now. And so the book is almost as old as I am, but I'm not feeling that it's dated. I am Good. feeling it definitely, it has that 70s style. You know, it does yeah. have the, that that kind of vibe to the captioning. Although the first person captions that you were using, which goes along with the books. But um, that that feels fresh. And, and again, once you put a first-person caption on something, you know the guy's not going to die. <laughs> unless, right. Unless you know. he's
1: already dead when he's telling the story. Right. Unless he's, I was never trying to convince anyone uh, John Carter could die because there were uh, ten novels out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to surprise you within the context
0: of the stories. Yeah, well, and you've succeeded – or you. you did succeed, I should say. But um, uh, well, let's move back onto your career then. Uh, as far as like the beginning of your career, what brought you into comics in general, as as a reader or as a a fan of comics? What 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 brought you into that?
1: Uh, well, I was very young, obviously, when I saw Superman on television, uh, the George Reeves shows, mm-hmm. the first time they were aired, and I had never seen anything like it before uh... it was the very concept of a superhero was brand new to me i never saw comic books uh... but i was only what six or seven or eight uh... uh... when i was watching that stuff and at the end of it it says that superman's based on the copyrighted characters appearing in superman and action comics and i went out with my friend that day that evening after the superman show and we bought our very first comics it's not as ridiculous as it sounds because we didn't have to, even at seven or eight we couldn't cross the street but we had two candy stores on our block that's old comics okay and I didn't have to walk more than a couple hundred yards to a store to buy it I never had to cross the street I had a dime uh, and my friend <laughs> had a dime and we bought two comic books that day and if you've never seen adventure material done in that uh, format if you've never seen a superhero uh if they did not ever exist in your life, which is impossible today right um, and this is the first time you're being exposed to anything that had that sort of a um uh thought process behind it, and you were inclined towards that just because of the way you were uh you're drawn in immediately
0: so y- you were already then. What were you reading other than – before you started reading the comics, before you bought – what kind of things were you into? Like Treasure Island or like the adventure novels or just –
1: Novels were still probably a year or two away. Okay. seven or eight at most. So I wasn't reading books then and they didn't have books for my age. Oh, okay. They they would have had children's books. If you base everything on today, nobody understands what the world was like then. But they didn't have books for seven, eight-year-olds. They had books for little kids. Uh, the best I was reading but this came a couple years later was the Tom Swifts and the Haughty Boys and all of that but again I had already been reading comics when I discovered those
0: so those, you, you discover those comics at right that, that sweet point, that just yeah. perfect moment in your life
1: Yeah, I, I knew how to read because I was reading stuff for school uh-huh. but I hadn't found anything yet that I wanted to read on my own
0: so what were some of your favorites back then? comic books yeah
1: yeah uh there weren't many being published superman batman wonder woman were the only superheroes being published uh anywhere um i liked the uh, uh, strange adventures and mystery in space but i also read the archies and i also read casper the friendly ghost and all of those i don't think i was ever a big fan of the casper stuff but i read it uh because i was reading comics and there were so few comics being published.
0: Yeah, well, when I was a kid, it was any kind of comic that came my way. It didn't matter. Yeah. It's yeah. just just cuz it was. Same. Same so here. So then lifelong fan, I guess, then yeah. you move into it as your career. How does that happen? Where uh, uh what brought you in as a professional then?
1: I studied to be an artist. I wanted to draw comics, and I always wrote stories for myself to draw, and I published fan magazines and uh, called fanzines Mm -hmm. and uh, first I contributed to others and then I wrote then I wrote and drew my own and everybody said that my writing was a lot better than my art and that was true Uh, and so I'd continue to write stories and then but back then again there was only DC and Marvel doing this type of material and it was the very beginning of Marvel Uh, so I would send copies of the fanzines to a couple of the editors and one of them, or two of them, actually got back to me saying, "If you ever want to try writing a story for a House of Mystery or a House of Secrets, please do," because I was publishing a horror fanzine filled with horror stories, as well as a superhero fanzine, and as well as a comedy fanzine. Okay.
0: <laughs> so you, you you covered everything then, you, I, if except if, for romance. I,
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't care about that. Uh, what what twelve year old boy does right. uh, at least back then. Uh, still a few more years to go, but if I enjoyed it, I published a fanzine of that type of material.
0: Nice, nice. And so that led to your work with with DC on the the anthology right. books there, and yeah. and then that led to Tarzan and to, not Tarzan, so, but to the John Carter and Tarzan book. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, yeah,
1: the John Carter backup. Yes.
0: So, um, all right. Well, would you, when you think then back, at, especially as as an early writer, not not necessarily. Um, back to when you were a child, but as, a, as an early writer and you're getting into the, the comic scene and that kind of thing, um, what, what comic creators would you look back on and look at them as maybe inspirations or maybe even as like mentors helping you with your craft? Who would you, who would you look to back then as, as that inspiration?
1: We have to understand they didn't put credits on comics for most years, for many, many years. So you never knew who did what um later on they started to add the credits and uh i would find uh, pretty much anything stan lee did i loved uh uh at dc it would be john broom and um some of the gardner fox stuff uh some of the bob kaniger stuff and a few of the other writers here and there but we didn't always know who did what because uh, of the lack of credits Uh, none of them were my mentor, but of the two that influenced me most at DC, it would have been, um, John Broom and at Marvel would have been, uh, Stan.
0: Okay. Um, now you've worked on, okay, so you started out on House of Secrets, House of Mystery and these little anthologies, but then, you know, your career goes everywhere and you worked on some of the, some touchstones in both uh, DC history but also in comic history in general. Um, so you have these big things. You know. you're you run on Teen Titans and you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is obviously – But that's later. Yeah, but I. what things do you look at now that maybe didn't get the limelight that those other books got but that you feel proud about or you, you think, oh, you know, this is something I wish more people would read?
1: Uh, that's always hard to say because uh, so many of the books did well. And I'm not phrasing myself there, but I think most of them, you know, I could say A Man Called Nova at Marvel uh, didn't get the attention back then that it actually gets now. I find so many people who are fans of that book now, but it wasn't the the big book at Marvel at the time, but I really loved doing it. At DC, it would have been a book like Night Force, Mm, which I really loved writing. Um, Those are the only two books that didn't have the sales... That I wish they had, but turns out that Nova probably sold a lot better than we thought because I can't believe how many people today are major Nova fans. Uh, The fact that the Nova Corps uh, was a major player in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie shows that if you're a certain age, you probably read the Nova comic and brought that stuff into it because there was no connection between Nova and the Guardians prior to the movie as far as I know.
0: How does that feel to see some of those things showing up on the screen that you either created or had a hand in developing anyway or, or giving voice to?
1: Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, it It essentially says that the stuff that you did for fun, because we did this type of material we wanted to do and have fun with it. and just as certainly those days at Marvel, we were in charge of our own books, so we did what we wanted. And it says pretty much that the things that we wanted to do resonate even today. Mm -hmm. And that's a great feeling. And then, of course, with conventions, you have people coming up to you telling you how important a book was to them at a certain point in their life. And you never heard those stories before. People didn't write to you telling you that. But now those people are in their 40s and above, and they're coming up to me at a convention. And it's, it's just an incredible feeling.
0: And I have to ask again, going back to John Carter. Then, what do you think of the movie? <laughs> I, I mean, you didn't it. create John Carter, but you are a part of yeah. John Carter history.
1: I liked it. Um, I thought that it re- it truly represented the type of material that was in uh, the Burroughs material. I had I did not have the problems that a lot of people have with it. Uh, I think the biggest problem with it is, good as the actors are, I didn't sense any uh, chemistry between John, uh, the actor who played John Carter and the actress who played Deja Thoris. Mm-hmm. Both fine actors. I'm not talking about their quality, but I didn't sense chemistry. And if you recall, the first John Carter book is called *A Princess of Mars, and it's a love story. Yeah, And that love story has to propel you for the first three novels. And I just didn't sense it. But in terms of... There were funny elements to it. I thought uh, the Tharks and Tars Chalkers and that company were amazingly well done the origin is straight
0: straightforward Mm -hmm. uh from burroughs um it was a period piece i couldn't believe that
1: it's it's a period piece and the biggest problem the film has and it's not the fault of the film it's the fault of nothing is that almost every good element of john carter has in the last hundred years been (laughs) ripped off John Carter was done 102 years ago. It was a, uh, I think it was 1912. Uh, I could be off for a year, but, you yeah. know, it's 100 years old. And almost everything great about it has been picked up by somebody else. I loved it when I read it because I had never read any of the other stuff that stole from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly all the big stuff like uh, a lot of Star Wars or whatever else uh, – that they didn't come until much later, so uh, I liked it. I I don't have the problem, and I told my wife about it, and uh, I was invited to a, a preview of the film, um, and my wife watched it later on TV because she she didn't want to come into uh, LA for that. Uh, she uh, she watched it on her own, and said she liked it too, and she was not even a fan of the original books. I don't I don't think it's a bad film. I think Disney just. Um, didn't push it in the uh, in the right way or care about it that much
0: yeah there were definitely some marketing missteps <laughs> happening there and yeah. i'm so glad to hear you say that too though because um one of my co-hosts daniel and i we both were standard bearers with that with that movie we love that movie we enjoyed it so much we were so disappointed because yeah. you know the box office definitely was, a sequel was not going to happen you know no. but but we got that movie though that's the thing is no yeah. sequel but yeah we still on my shelf i have that movie and i can watch it and um it, it thrilled me it, just in that kind of going back to that inner 15-year-old or inner 14-year-old yeah. who's just you know enjoying the adventure and, and the romance to it. But,
1: now, I had read – when I worked at Disney uh, back in the early 90s, I read a couple of drafts by different writers of what a John Carter film could be. And several of them got it. Several of them didn't. The biggest problem was it's so expensive to make. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately Disney didn't have – the belief that the film could make back money and they're probably right because again, every element of it had been taken. So it it would not feel fresh to a lot of people It would in fact feel old, but on a basis of just seeing a film, I liked it.
0: Uh, So you mentioned you working at Disney. Um, You've worked in comics. You've also worked in animation. What are some of the things in animation that you've done? Um, I don't know much about your animation career, other than when I met you at Wizard World, I, I saw you had some scripts for the Godzilla cartoon series that came out after that that uh, right. '90s and movie. T-
1: a lot of Transformers stuff. I developed uh, Beast Machines for Transformers. I was the original. I was one of the original story editors on the first run of Transformers, and I wrote co-wrote um, uh, the Optimus Prime two-parter that brings him back to life. Oh,
0: nice! I didn't uh, realize that.
1: Yeah. I was story editor for uh, this, uh, the uh, CBS Superman TV cartoon show. Uh, I was story editor for um, uh, Monster Force from Universal. I did uh, the Batman cartoon show. I've done, I've done a ton of stuff over the years.
0: So how does, how does that compare to your work in comics? And I'm not going to ask you to choose between babies here. I'm not going to say you know, which the, one's every, better. you know? But how does it compare?
1: Different. When you're doing comics, you can say which one is more fun. Um, when you're doing comics, it's mostly what you want to do. It's mostly your feelings, mostly your, your interests involved. When you're doing animation, unless you developed it, what you're trying to do is fit in with an entire group of writers who have to write fairly similarly for a project so that all the episodes of something or other, um, uh, feel the same to some degree. So for personal statements, comics are a lot better. Uh, for the fun of doing moving characters and the type of stories that it would be a little bit harder to do live action unless you're going to have a $200 million transformers Mm -hmm. movie. Um, you know animation is wonderful I love writing animation but uh, comics are still the more personal uh, thing that I write I also write video games and I've done other things as well
0: yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are you working on these days then Oh, I'm
1: finishing a uh, number of issues of a special project for DC, which I can't talk about. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm working on a novelization of something I'm also not allowed to talk about. Okay. <laughs> and there's a couple of other things uh, that are about to start.
0: That you can't talk about? No. Okay. <laughs>
1: everyone, sign, everyone these days, like never before, has you sign non-disclosure agreements. I think all the companies want to be in charge of their own promotion and mm-hmm. own uh, advertising, and they don't want the people who are doing the episodes or the comics or whatever else to get in the way of their program. And that's they're spending the money, so they have the right to call for that. But what it does mean is, unfortunately, I can't talk about what I'm doing most of the time until it's just until they announce it.
0: Right, right. Well, and you know, back you know, 1978 you didn't have the internet to tell you know yeah. you weren't on the internet doing interviews with podcasters and you know newsarama and bleeding cool or anything like i mean they it just didn't exist so if you told someone about it at a convention maybe 20 more people would find out but
1: but there were fanzines and that would go out to a certain number of people and uh so information got out there but it was a little bit harder now of course you don't even have to leave your office
0: right yeah it's true, which we're both in our offices right now, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, we, we're anywhere a phone with um internet connection is, yeah. Uh,
0: okay. Well, I have one one last question that I have to ask you because one of my other co hosts, uh, Matt, he's reading Crisis on Infinite Earths and he said, Hey, Ben, ask him about Crisis on Infinite Earths. Like, what? That's really broad and not really, yeah, <laughs> not exactly. really a question. Um, so I tried to think of a question that I could ask you that maybe hasn't been asked a million times. Uh, maybe I succeeded, maybe not. But here's my question. What's a memory that you have about the, uh, either the creation or the reception of Crisis on Infinite Earth, as far as maybe readers or you working on it or however, however you want to interpret the question, but a good memory about Crisis on Infinite Earth?
1: Well, the production of doing the book was the hardest thing I've ever done. I worked several years creating that plot and making it work. It's a very well structured story. And I can say that because I did have to read it recently and, I, <laughs> and it still held up. And it's very complex. And I know that the only way you could do something of that sort is to take your time with it. And I had a, I had a couple years to actually work it out. But it was the hardest book in the in the world to have done. It was incredibly difficult and it was a major problem because nobody had ever done a book like that before therefore the other editors and the other writers at the company were not thrilled by it or even the concept of it. They wanted everything to stay exactly the way it was when they got into comics despite the fact that it was now a whole new generation of readers uh, behind it. So it was a very very difficult and argumentative time and just hard to put it together I love the writing of it don't don't get me wrong i'm not talking about the creative process creative process was wonderful Mm -hmm. uh especially after george uh perez decided he wanted to be on the book i hoped he would but we didn't (laughs) think he would be uh because he was going to go off and do wonder woman and i didn't think we'd be doing another book together so soon after titans and it wasn't written with him in mind and he kept saying no to the very idea until he finally went i got to do this book and i think he's happy now that he did But, uh, so the creative was one thing. That was great. It was just George and me. The political situation of trying to produce it was uh, very difficult. The fan reaction, even though people would come up and say they didn't like the fact that Supergirl died or Flash died, they all said they died in the best way they could possibly have gone. And people tell me constantly that, it was the most important story of their childhood which is amazing to me because i didn't think that the comic in itself would be remembered i thought the new universe we were going to create was going to be the thing that people would remember and the comic that led to it was just the highway that took you to the destination but it turns out that it was the book itself that's held on uh, all these years, and that's why it's constantly in reprint and constantly coming out there and beautiful editions. The uh, uh, DC Absolute version of it is just one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen uh, done in comic book format. It's oversized, beautiful paper, great ink, great color. So the fan reaction has been astounding, even if they didn't want to see Supergirl or Flash or one of the others die. Today, it's incredibly gratifying because people come up and just say how much they love it.
0: That's got to feel... I mean, as a creator, you let your baby go, and then to see your baby actually grow up and make a better world, so to speak.
1: Well, you have no idea, also, because it had never been done before, and it was a really controversial concept, since characters were going to die, and worlds were going to stop, and the multiverse was going to come to an end. It could have been taken horribly. And yeah, there were people who didn't like it. But I'd say... Of the male reactions that I got then, 95% of the people loved it. And the reaction that I get today is almost universally 100%. I haven't gotten anyone who said how much they hated it or something. (laughs) I have a hunch they just wouldn't come up to me after 30 years and say something like that. They'd have to
0: really hate it to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And considering what's come out since, I think the book would still hold up.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's the least of sins, I think, considering some of the things that have happened. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, to to talk with me about old comics. I mean, that's what the comic book time machine is about is going back in time. But, um, do you have a I, – I, actually, I know you have a website, but would you like to let, the, let our listeners know what your website is? And, sure. Um, and if you have any work that you want to promote right now, you can go ahead and do that too. But, well, as
1: I say, I can't talk about most of the stuff I'm yeah. working
0: on. Uh, keep
1: your eyes open to my Facebook page, which is the Marv Wolfman page or whatever it's called. Um, my website is MarvWolfman.com, and it has interesting back features about the Titans and um, – writing and a whole bunch of other things and lots of pictures of celebrities who have played my characters on tv and movies yes.
0: <laughs> that's actually kind of cool When i was looking at that though because i i was trying to imagine what does it feel like to see you know to see them on the screen and and, and just and moving you know <laughs> yeah. yeah so
1: it's a great feeling
0: all right well thank you so much and um pleasure. i really appreciate it
1: okay you take care
0: you too Once more, I want to thank uh, Mr. Wolfman for joining us to talk about John Carter and talking about him (laughs) and his career. But now uh, to examine one of Mr. Wolfman's John Carter stories. John Carter, Warlord of Mars Annual Number 1 is loosely adapted from Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Ancient Dead. To read this, if you want to read this today, you'll need to get that Marvel omnibus, which is only $25 in some places. In fact, the Wizard World convention. If I had forgotten to bring my omnibus, I would have easily and and happily plopped down twenty five dollars to to have him sign it. I mentioned that I I read the book first, and this is something that I like to do. I like to check out the source material, see what they did with the or, you know see the original, and then see what they did with it later on. So, uh, for example, I've already watched the movie The Deep for next, uh my next Marvel sci fi licensed episode. Uh and I'm going to be watching Star Trek the Motion Picture when that pops up and I'm going to be watching uh, a few of the first few episodes of Battlestar Galactica when I get to them. So, here's the setup. And like I said before, The Ancient Dead has an interesting setup and an interesting concept in the beginning and it has actually a, a kind of um visual and even emotional ending. Unfortunately, between point A and point B, well, Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of drops the ball for me twice. And one of them was so bad that it totally just turned me against the story. And I rolled my eyes. I crossed my arms. I almost spoke out loud. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't speak out loud and say, oh, come on, or anything like that. But I was thinking it. It was in my head. So when I got to the end, I was doing something that I rarely do. And that was I was rooting for Mr. Wolfman to fix the story. I wanted him to change this story. And this goes against... Almost not quite, but almost every fiber in my being i'm generally speaking an adapting purist depending on the intent and the source now if you're just taking characters and you're just taking inspiration that's one thing you know Frankenstein and Dracula movies they tend to do that they're taking the inspiration they're taking the um, the mood they're taking the character they're taking the, the basic concept and then they're 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 casting it into a new story. Or a similar story, but they're not trying to say this is the same story. Then you have something like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Or even worse, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it's not. They're saying it's the same, but they are not doing the same thing. And if you're going to say it belongs to someone else, then you need to own it and say it belongs to someone else. Like I say before, uh, when I do my adaptations of uh, George Martin's uh, hedge knight books it's george martin's name above the title not mine and so i want to make sure that i'm as pure and as close to the original as can be uh, based on the fact that it it is two different mediums so here i am and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read an adaptation by mr wolfman of this story and I I'm wondering, okay, how is he going to honor the story? And is he going to say, no, I'm not going to honor it completely because there's some stupid, stupid stuff in here. But normally, you know, I just want to say be as pure as possible based on the time and space constraints. You know, if you're trying to take a a novel and turn it into a six page comic, well, obviously you're going to have to leave some stuff out, but not change everything completely. But here, I'm actually rooting for him to do that. Now, uh, I did on the front page, the the title page, it does say it is loosely adapted. That gives him more freedom. And it gives me more optimism. (laughs) Now, looking at the the cover page, When Walk the Ancient Dead is the title that Marv Wolfman gives to this story. Loose basically on Ancient Dead by Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's uh, Marv Wolfman, writer, editor. Sal Bushima and Ernie Chan are the artists. Joe Rosen is the letterer and Janice Cohen is the colorist. So we do have a, a new art team here working on things. And honestly, uh, I'm just going to give a quick preview of the artwork. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just kind of glancing through it. They really stick with the Gil Kane uh, feel of things. And there is definitely still that energy and that swashbuckling feel and part of it has to do with those, those pirate boots with the fold over top. And, and part of it has to do with I, I think that they are trying to ape the, the Gil Kane feel of, of the, the monthly book. But at the same time, it's not it's not Gil Kane. I'll just put it that way. I've grown used to Gil Kane on the book and honestly, I know he doesn't stay on the on the title for the entire run. He will be missed, uh, even if the art is as good as this. I, I think I'm going to miss him. So here's a brief synopsis of Edgar Rice Burroughs' original story. It's a fairly simple story. John Carter is going out for a fly. Uh, he's flying in his flying ship over the Barsoonium landscape to get some fresh air and to, to just you know clear his head and, and think about things. Think about life. Philosophize a little bit. And in the original novel, this is actually happening toward the end of the novels and john carter he's long living in fact he's actually you know he's he's had life before the the first book apparently and i don't know all the details about how that works with him being that kind of like that immortal warrior but he's been around for a long time he's got ground tr- he's got children and grandchildren and all that kind of thing he looks and he sees a white martian and, and those white martians are actually from the early days of mars uh, you have red martians you have green Martians. And then you have this, this white Martian who has a skin tone similar to John Carter's. And he's being attacked by green Martians. And, of course, John Carter inter, intervenes, saves the man, whose name is Pandanchi. Chi. But Pandan Chi tells J, uh, John Carter to leave, to go away. John stays instead and, and finds himself surrounded by people. And they take him into their ancient city. And he finds himself in a setup for... Honestly, this could be any number of, of different things where it's that insular town. It could be a twilight zone where there's just a group of people who live in this town that hasn't been touched by time for for ages. Or it could be a, a 70s horror movie kind of setup. Or it, it could be honestly a 70s or 80s, you know, traveling do-gooder, the Incredible Hulk. He comes into a, a small village that no one has left the village for a long time. And then, of course, he turns into the Hulk and, and helps somebody out. But it's just that, that setup. There's there's this nice setup here. Because the city that Pandan Chi comes from has been undiscovered by the outside. And I shouldn't say undiscovered. Because any outsiders who do come to the city, they're killed. And so if the city gets discovered, they are going to stay a secret. And, and the secret will never be taken to the outside world because the outsiders are killed. But Pandan Chi stands... For John Carter and and he asks for some grace. They don't give grace, he says, but he saved my life. They don't care. And, and John Carter tries to bargain a deal with them. You know, he's obviously got some influence and they could be allies, but they're not having any of that. They want to have their insular closed town or city. They don't want anyone to come inside. But Pandanchi is able to get a stay of execution for John and, and asks for them to deliberate overnight and so uh, John Carter and Pandan are put in these ancient pits, where no one who has gone in has ever come out. They're just going to stay in the entrance, though. And John Carter then moves from a, a '70s horror movie setup or a Twilight Zone setup, and instantly walks into basically a Dungeons and Dragons scenario. They wander the ancient catacombs, they fight and have random encounters with giant ooze. Us- Uci, U- U- which are basically rat creatures from Barsoom, which means that they have, you know, eight legs, and these ones are supposed—they're they're, they're generally smaller, but these ones are the size of panthers. And as they're traveling and fighting and and everything, they're getting to know each other, and they all—they happen to have some torches with these everlasting torches that the, the people of the, the city have, and they're getting ready to play a game like chess. And John Carter just happens to have his. His, uh set with him they took his swords but not his chest set and, and the pieces are hand carved and they're they're hand carved likenesses of real people including Lilana or Lana however I'm gonna say Lana uh, it's two L's but I'm gonna pronounce it with one John Carter's granddaughter and Pandan sees this piece this chess piece and falls in love with the most beautiful woman he has ever seen uh, let me say that again. He picks up a chess piece that is a carved likeness of John Carter's granddaughter and he falls in love with a carved chess piece. It's love at first sight and he would do anything for this woman. So now we get into some of the plot that I really found very interesting. This this chess piece thing, I did not like it. But you know what? At this point, I can live with it. I just think the guy's a little weird. I'm not realizing that I'm being set up. Edgar Rice Burroughs is setting me up for one of my huge pet peeves in storytelling, but we'll get to it in the pits. This, these, these pits are millions of years old and they're actually kind of a catacombs kind of thing. And they're from a time when Barsoom had rich blue oceans. And in times past, people would end up in the pits and they would, they would never come out. Now, John Carter doesn't care about that because he believes that they came in that entrance and they're supposed to go back out the next day to find out what the what their the, the sentence is going to be, if it's going to be a death sentence or not. John Carter, he is going to find the other end. He is going to find the other way out. Now, uh, Pandan does care. He is going back, even if that means he has to drag John, uh, John Carter with him. And so they end up, facing off they're going to fight they are using weapons from a sarcophagus that you know where a dead body was and pandan just can't put any effort into it though he couldn't kill john carter john carter's too honorable he's an honorable man and besides he's the grandfather of the woman that pandan loves he hasn't met him he's only seen the chess piece likeness of her but he's the grandfather of that woman so they continue together And the these these dead bodies in these sarcophaguses, they should be dust because they are from millions of years ago, but they are perfectly preserved. And Pandan tells the story about about this rumor that back in the day, millions of years ago, there was a master embalmer who was able to. And I love this. This is kind of fun. This is kind of that fun, funny legend kind of thing that, you know, just lasts throughout time. And I, I like the way this goes, but he says that this man was able to embalm bodies so well that the dead person themselves didn't realize they were dead, and they would get up and walk around. So there's also this kind of crazy evil laugh that they hear every once in a while, and they see light at the ends of some tunnels every once in a while. And they finally find the source of the laugh and the, the light, and that's an ancient madman who embalms people who get lost down there and i get the impression although i don't think it was actually said outright but i get the impression that when he embalms people it, it it allows him to live longer and this and there's a magical connection between the embalmed people and him and we'll get to that in a moment here but he obviously is going to try and embalm john carter and, and pandan and they're they're his next victims but of course they kill him now after they kill him the other victims wake up, and this is kind of creepy, and I'm not sure what's going to happen next year because these, these are corpses coming back to life. But corpses from millions of years ago or, or a million a year ago, it, the timeline doesn't matter. These are people who are supposed to have been dead for millennia. And uh, I shouldn't say that because there is one of them who was only there for a very short time. You see, she came in that other end that John Carter was convinced exists because she was on the run from a warlord who had kidnapped her. And when she escaped by causing their ship to crash, she just happened to find that opposite entrance to the pits. And she was captured and she was embalmed. And so when she comes out of the sarcophagus coffin thingy that, that they, he had, a, had them put, put in, John Carter recognizes her. It's Lana. Lana. Yes, his granddaughter. Um, So John Carter, uh, Pandan and and Lana, who now Pandan has seen her face to face and has dedicated his life to her with an oath. They join the ancient dead by walking to the exit of the pits. John Carter. Now they get to the end. John Carter has escaped his death sentence. Pandan, he has found the living embodiment of the chess piece he fell in love with lana is annoyed with this common man who is interested in her and the ancient ones are shocked that the world they knew just minutes ago for them because as far as they were concerned they were embalmed just minutes ago none of that time they they were not even aware of that time that had passed and they are shocked to the point where some start weeping some even start committing suicide stabbing themselves through with their knives as soon as they go out and see the dead seas, the sandy landscape. There is no life. There are you know, just a few plants. There is no water. And then, and then, and I'm spoiling the whole thing here, I guess. I'm just going to do it. They crumble to dust and they blow away in the wind. And it's a very poignant scene. And, and it kind of redeems things a little bit for me. But only a little bit. And so then uh, John Carter's flyer is gone uh, because somebody, is, uh, probably the warlord or his men, have, have taken it. and they're... So the trio have to make their way across the desert over a thousand miles. And, and uh, Dan Pan is, or Pan Dan, it, Mr. Chi, is determined to woo Lana while they travel together. And even when he kills a Banth, it doesn't help. She is not impressed not one bit now maybe by the end of the fourth novella that makes up this book they'll they'll be together maybe as they travel this long journey this long and difficult journey it'll be like like the barsoomium version of of moonlighting i don't know and i don't care because i have two problems with this story two problems one word Lana. Now, perhaps this is meant to be parody. I did read something online that said that maybe Edgar Rice Burroughs was doing some self-parody because this is coming toward the end of his career. It doesn't read that way, though. The the lost isolated civilization. This is world building and it's good world building. It's interesting. You're getting this view and this glimpse into the the past of Barsoom. You're seeing these people who have isolated themselves and tried to keep their society the same as it was way back when. And then you get a second layer of that where you have people who actually are from that, that society that they have been trying to preserve. These people have been literally preserved and they come out of their preserve and you get a glimpse into actually their own perspective of things. And it's very interesting. You have this, these parallel preservations of the past. And I love this. I love these parallel preserved societies. And yes, only one of them gets an interesting resolution. Maybe in one of the uh, other novellas, uh, the people of the city actually chase them down. But as far as I know, it, the novella the only gives us one resolution where the people who have been preserved come out into the, 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 the fresh air, basically, and they, they fade away. They fall away. But Pandan falls in love with a chess piece, and the subject of the chess piece just happens to have been captured and embalmed in a place that just happens to be where john carter's next adventure is taking place and that is a place that is completely unknown to the outside world so john carter and lana both accidentally find this place that has been lost for generations in the middle of nowhere and just before they cross paths john carter just happens to show a chess piece carved like his granddaughter to someone who is inclined to fall in love with her on the spot. This better be parody. (laughs) okay? It doesn't feel like parody. It doesn't feel like it to me. It feels straight. It feels legit. But these coincidences, these coincidences are of Thor the Dark World proportions. They just their coincidence is meant for one reason and one reason only to get this character to fall in love with that character so that they can have wacky adventures afterward. I guess this bothered me. So I read the novella and I enjoy parts and I hated parts and all I could think was, I hope he fixes this. I hope he fixes this. And I am so happy to say he did going into the comic now the same basic plot is there but i'm going to tell you what the changes were here's what mr wolfman did instead of a chess piece that john carter just happens to carry around he carries around it's a chess set it's not chess it's, it's a game like chess i'm just calling it chess piece for the for the ease of things but he's carrying it around they take away his sword but they don't take away his pouch with his chess set and anyway Instead of a chess set, John Carter and Pandan are walking to their trial, and Pandan points out an ancient statue of a woman that he finds to be gorgeous. He finds this image, this graven image, this, this statue of someone from their ancient past to be gorgeous, to be beautiful, to be regal, to be royal, and he has grown to love her over time. This makes sense to me. Now, is it still a little weird? Yes, it is still a little weird. But it is a lot more realistic and a lot more natural than to just fall in love on the spot with a chess piece. This is a statue that was carved at the time of the people who were disappearing into the catacombs. Now, this makes sense then When this woman climbs out of a tomb when John Carter and Pandan are down there. Now, unfortunately, um, the one thing is I got the impression from the story that when the embalmer was killed, there was this connection between him and his victims. I I don't get that from the story here. Uh, When the embalmer is thrown against a pillar, he doesn't die. He stays alive and he actually interacts with the, the victims. And they're not happy with what he has done with them. So I'm not sure exactly why they start to wake up. But I don't even think I would be asking the question as much if I hadn't read the story, the, the original story. They do just happen to wake up at just the right time and, and he interacts with them. and But like I said, she is one of them who comes out. And this makes sense. Now lana john carter's granddaughter is gone from the story and maybe mr wolfman did this because he wanted to shift things to take place closer to the time period where the main monthly series was taking place or maybe mr wolfman did this because this is clown shoes this whole chess piece thing and he realized this maybe i don't know Uh, but the story flows logically now and the, lo- the love story actually has some resonance it- it's still quick it- it- now it's on her part that it's quick and you know he talks strange because you know they're millions of years separated uh she's royalty but as they're talking she invites uh him to her chambers to uh entertain her quote unquote and later in her chambers they um <laughs> they do some talking and they do some not talking uh, as my old high school chum used to say Uh, the same high school chum i might add who borrowed and never returned my copies of battlestar galactica issues one through three but that's not important we have some time before we get to that so now without the pandan lana relationship and banth battle at the end to end on uh mr wolfman has to make you know another change he has to change the ending here there it's a different relationship between the two of them so he makes one more significant change and that's this big battle between John Carter and some of the warriors who came back to life they chase each other around the ruins and it gets a little surreal and at the end Mr. Wolfman even goes for kind of an emotional kick whether or not it works well i i'm not going to say too much i don't want to spoil everything although i pretty much have spoiled almost everything he fixed the big problem though he fixed my big problem and i'll just leave it at that i'll just say that there is some of the same tragedy that was in the original with those people who came out of their time into this new time this new world there's some of that tragedy there and even with that though it's a happy ending for me now i'm not as engaged as i am with the uh, air pirates storyline but as a one off it's good it's good and the goodwill of the air pirates story is is there for me with this story and so even though this story mo- doesn't capture me as much as the other ones do because of the air pirates stories i read this and i think to myself this is i'm enjoying myself because i'm i'm in a familiar place even though the artwork is slightly different. It's just a little bit. It's just left of center, let's say. So that, I guess, uh, that kind of concludes things here. I I don't want to go on much more. Uh, I do say, still, buy that omnibus. This is a book that I cannot recommend strongly enough, even though I said I was going to wait until the end of the story arc to say whether or not it's worth it. What I've read... Five issues in an annual has been well worth the twenty-five bucks that I spent on this. Now, at a hundred bucks, uh, I, I think there, there, I need to continue reading to see if it's worth it at that at that price. But I have a feeling, if this is any indication, that it will be. And, and once I get you know through the twelve issues of the Air Pirates of of Mars, I'll. I'll be able to you know recommend the, the book at full price, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But as it stands right now, I I I cannot say enough how pleasantly surprised I've been by John Carter, Warlord of Mars. It's just been exciting and interesting, and it's that pulpy, exciting sci-fi that it just, there's a satisfaction to that kind of storytelling. There's a satisfaction to, you know, 2001 as well. And you can't get much further away from 2001 than John Carter, uh, unless you're going to go in a completely different direction where you're going toward, you know, plan nine from outer space kind of stuff. Just again, you're kind of going to clown shoes to get to that other side oh, away from, from 2001. But I really am enjoying this book and a, a great surprise and, just an exciting, exciting read. So I, I want to thank you again for listening. Again, I want to thank Mr. Wolfman for taking the time to uh, to sit down and, and talk. And if you want to uh, add your own two cents, if you have any anything you want to add or have any, any thoughts about what Mr. Wolfman said, uh, please, please contact us at feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com. That's our email address. If you go to comicbooktimemachine.com, you can also leave comments on the episode blog post. you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash comic book time machine and all of these places we would love to hear from you we do this because we enjoy comics and we hope that you enjoy listening to us talk about comics we enjoy but we also want to hear from you about the comics that you enjoy So once again, that email address is feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com. Now, you can also hear me talking about the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. at welcometolevel7.com. That's a podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Welcome to Level 7, that I co-host with uh, Daniel Butcher. You can also find me talking about sci-fi and fantasy and faith and and Christianity at strangersandaliens.com. And my personal website is benavery.com. And we have facebook sites for all those things but those are just different places you can find me so again i thank you for listening and until next time i'm just going to leave you with some advice that i picked up just uh by reading this the story and that is to say if your friend has a chess set that they always carry around with them that the pieces are carved from people from his life and family And one of those chess pieces happens to be a very, very beautiful woman or handsome man or whatever. I would suggest maybe waiting until you meet the person to fall in love with them. I'm just saying, I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. Next episode begins our coverage of cover date November 1977.